we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Uh, hello and welcome, dear listener. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. Coming to you on a Tuesday night, as per usual, we're going to talk about news and politics and sex and religion, and we've got uh, interesting data coming out from the census, and uh, interesting stuff out of America with Roe v. Wade. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Daniel's in the chat room. He's already said hello. Good on you, Daniel. And, uh, you know, dear listener, I just want to talk to you about podcast co-hosts. If you ever happen to have a podcast as a co-host... You know, I, uh, I'm starting to think of them like children. Um, they grow up, they think they know better than you, or they want to spread their wings, and they leave. And just when you get used to the peace and quiet, some of them, they come back, claim their old bedroom, <laughs> put their dirty washing in your basket and start drinking your beer from your fridge. On that note, I welcome hey, back. I this beer myself. <laughs> On that note, I welcome back Scott the Velvet Glove. How are you, Scott? G'day, Trevor. Not too bad, thanks, mate. And yourself? I'm well. I'm well. So good oh, to have you great. back. And uh, I did step into the breach that Shay left left you in the lurch. Yeah, so. she has. Yeah. So and Joe, well, she didn't leave you in the lurch. No, she's on to bigger and better things. She's actually, I saw on her Instagram pictures from Canada. Looks very nice. So she's having a good time. Absolutely. Don't worry about Shay, dear listener. She's fine. <laughs> Poor Joe, he's having to work. He had some client who has to do some changeover and uh, of a system and can only or only wants to do it on a Tuesday night. So, um, so Joe's not with us. It's just uh, Scott and myself. And Joe's really annoyed because of the census data and the Roe v. Wade. He was really wanting to be on tonight, so <laughs> so he's he's angry. Um, but you know, I, I won't make much of a fuss about you, Scott, because. You know the story of the prodigal son when he returned and the son who had stayed got really yeah. annoyed when the father threw the party for the prodigal son and the guy who stayed was just like, well, you never put on a fatted calf for me. So so I won't make much of a hullabaloo about your return just in case Joe gets <laughs> jealous and wants me to <laughs> kill a fatted calf as well. Hello, Anne and David and Greg and Tony Wall. Hello, Tony. Um, welcome into the chat room. Well... 2021 census. We were saying just before we started, Scott, I can remember this corresponding episode five years ago when the 2016 data came out. Mm. And that was the first one where the question was put at the beginning, the no religion option was put at the beginning. And we had high hopes at that stage for a massive no religion sort of statistic to come out. And the one that came out was Good, but it wasn't great. It wasn't brilliant. No. No. But this one it is surprising. Brilliant. This one is surprisingly good, I think we would have to say. So yeah. for those who haven't heard, uh, the no religion um, total in the census now, people identifying as, as not having religion, is pretty much close to 39%. And, um, and total Christians is down to uh, a bit over 43%. So no religion 
there's almost, uh, well, it'll overtake Christians at the next census, you would think, in five years' time, Scott. One would have thought so. Mm. So, um, Which I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah. So, um, so I've got some graphs I'll put up. Let me put uh, this one up, which um, I think is the one that shows it well. The top line shows Christianity on a downward path and no religion on an upward path. And you can just tell by that that it's um, that no religion is about to take over. And, you know, what does it matter? Well, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, data on religious affiliation is used for planning the location of educational facilities, aged care and other social services provided by religion-based organisations for the planning and location of church buildings, for assigning chaplains to hospitals, prisons, armed services and universities, uh, for the allocation of time on public radio and other media and for sociological research. So according to the ABS, that's what the data's used for. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. (laughs) 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 Because Scott Morrison and the likes... They just pile money into religious stuff wherever they can do it and get away with it, and it doesn't matter what um, the pro rata religious beliefs might be in the country or in any particular area. They will just uh, look after their flock and not give a rat's about the rest of us if given half an opportunity. So bear all that, take it all with a grain of salt. I think you're right there because you're never only going to look at the amount of money that they pissed up against the wall in 180 TC. Mm. Yes. I mean, that was outrageous what they did there. Yes, we'll talk about that 180 TC in a little while. So Mm. let's just um, talk about some other statistics before we move on. So Christians, um, only 10 years ago, 61%. Five years ago, 52%, and this time 43 So dropped by nine and dropped by another nine. Definitely a strong movement uh, where the Christian numbers are going down. Um, so amongst the existing 43 and 44-odd uh, percent, uh, well, Catholics are the biggest, 20%. Uh, Anglicans, 98 and others are 14.1. So, um, yeah, the others would be your, I guess, Pentecostals and Mormons and um, other sort of Christian sects. And your Presbyterians, which yes. is what I was. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yep. Mm. So, uh, downward path of Christianity and. Um, Really, there's sort of two big groups because you've got Christians, you've got no religion, and then it's a long way to Islam, um, Hinduism and all, that, all the others. So Islam, 3.2%. Uh, what else is next? Um, nobody really. That, that's, oh, Hinduism, 2.69%. So, so we've got Christians in this country and we've got no religion. They're the two really major groups and the others don't figure much at all. If you get to see the statistics, you'll see 
it's a bit odd when you look at some of it because they have no religion so described as um, as one figure, and then underneath that they'll have secular beliefs and other stuff. So it's quite confusing the when you see them in a table format. Sometimes if people put other religion but then wrote themselves down as atheists, then the the census people will lump that amount into the no religion, the total no religion figure. So they've got a no religion so described and then they pick up bits and pieces to get a total figure that's the one that's reported. So that's a little I bit... I think difficult. the one that's really missing here mm. is Jedi because uh, the Batuta Advocate... Yes. Did broadcast tonight, and they said that Jedi was also down. Oh, did they say that? How would they? Yeah, they did. I've been trying to find the minor religions like Satanism, and I haven't been able mm. to find the statistic for the really minor religions. So the only one I've been able to find is sort of the top fifteen or so. So I haven't been able to find the minor ones. Here's the other statistic I saw: Pentecostals, one point zero one percent of the population. But what percentage of our parliament and our power, you know, did they have in the last government? Mm-hmm. Between Scott Morrison and his inner circle of fellow Pentecostalists, mm-hmm. huge power exercised by what was only 1% of the population. Yeah, exactly. It just goes back to your um, story that you often tell about them branch stacking and that sort of stuff. Yep. You know, because the WA Liberal Party is experiencing exactly the same problems now mm. in real time. But I don't think they're going to be bright enough to work out that that's why they lost Curtin, that's why they lost the state election and all that type of thing, because the Christians are just going to bang on about exactly the same thing again and again. You know, it's just one of those things. It's um, The only good news out of that is that it's going to keep them out of office for a good three terms, I would have thought. Mm. In the chat room, Tony Wall makes the point that the census question is still not framed correctly, and he's right no, because he's right. It, it, it contains what's known as framing because the question is, uh, what is your religion? And you, rather than saying, are you religious? And then if yes, which one? It just says, what is your religion? Which assumes that you have a religion. And ask you, and then puts the option of no religion as one of the as one of the answers there. So, um, uh, David in the chat room says we were encouraged to put no religion over Satanism, Jewish, Pastafarian, etc. And um, yeah, I think it was a good idea. Definitely a good idea not to do the silly answers and put in the genuine no religion answer. So I think that was a good idea, good advice. Um, what else have we got on these statistics? I mean, it's just a good result, isn't it, Scott? Like, it's a it's great really result. Good result. It's I think really great. Everyone's result. quite happy about it. And yeah, um, I, as I mentioned to you beforehand, Scott, am going to be looking at the data in different electorates held by Labor state candidates, particularly my local candidate, Jonty Bush. It'd be really good to be able to look at the suburb by suburb sort of breakdown of religion and maybe in the leafy western suburbs of John D. Bush's electorate, the no religion is up to 50%, could well be, mm. don't know, and and put that under a nose and say um, the Greens are going to be the Greens are going to be pushing for no religious instruction 
in state schools and look how many are non-religious in your electorate and how few are Christian who care about it. If you want to keep your seat, you're going to have to do something. So, um, so yeah, so that's um, that's where that's I'm going to be looking at. Mm. All right, uh, Pentecostals, what the data is used for. Um, so, Scott, you mentioned the 180TC rehab yeah. facility. So, Which is a, owned and operated by the Hillsong Church. And I can't remember the exact details, but there was one of the guys that had checked himself out of a genuine rehab facility, went into this one and found himself washing... um, Brian Houston's car. (laughs) Brian Houston's car. That's it, yes. That's the name I was hoping for. Yeah. There's an article in Crikey. I don't think Hillsong owns it, but they seem to be very closely connected to it. So they received $2 million in taxpayers' funds for this rehab facility and according to the article from Crikey, um, uh, he says it's tied to the Hillsong Church and um, described in this article as a Hillsong indoctrination centre with a mild interest in rehabilitation (laughs) was how it was described. Um, Yeah, this guy um, found himself washing Brian Houston's car as a volunteer and... It's emerged that uh, Hillsong donates about three hundred to four hundred thousand a year to the one eighty TC facility, and um, there's a report which gives metrics on Hillsong's donation to one eighty TC, which it describes as a Christ-centered organisation, more than just a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program, and in their <laughs> report. It says, quote, it's been an exciting year for 180TC. Now, they don't go on to mention how many people that have recovered from an addiction. It's an exciting year because they recorded 80 salvations and 37 baptisms in 2022 alone with one of our ex-students choosing to stay on for our graduate program where they volunteer for ministry. That's how they are measuring the success of their donations to 180TC is, is not in <laughs> recovery from addiction but conversion to the faith. Oh, Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, so they're essentially buying conversions by taking advantage of people at their most vulnerable time and there's a coffee lounge there held after each Sunday evening service at Hillsong Hills Campus it's a, uh, run by volunteers, and it's the only time and place where the inmates are allowed to see their families. So basically, the families of rehab residents are also being forced to attend Hillsong Church so they can also be brainwashed. What a setup! So there we go. So they really are a pack of thieves, aren't they? So if, if, if you think the government uses this statistical information to allocate funding correctly, uh, nope. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, Greg in the chat room says, the Bureau of Statistics publicly announced a long time ago they would not accept JEDI and would bundle it into undisclosed. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. No, this is just this is just from the Batuta Advocate that I was listening to this afternoon. Yeah. They probably got it wrong. That was Craig in the chat room. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Um, what else we got here? What else? I think that's about it. Honestly, what else can you say except it's great news and mm-hmm. uh, really I'm sure the National Secular Lobby, the atheists, the rationalists and all those other people will be again badgering the Australian Bureau of Statistics um, as it calls for submissions and feedback for the next one in 2026 about the question and to try mm. and get the question reframed into are you religious, yes, no, if so, which religion? Um, mm. I gathered, though, from their conversations with the ABS, the ABS wasn't too keen on doing that. I don't like their chances. But maybe new leadership, new management, who knows? Um, yeah. So So that was that. Um We're going to talk about Roe v. Wade in a second, but before we do, um, Scott, did you go and see Tom Cruise and Top Gun, like this latest Maverick movie? I I didn't. Um, Brian reckons it was just a little bit um, formulaic, I think was his words. He says it just seemed to be a little bit tiresome and boring. Right. I haven't yeah. seen it. I have no intention of seeing it. I can't <laughs> believe that Crow and adults are raving about a Tom Cruise Top Gun remake. Um, you know, first of all, it's just difficult to watch because the guy's a Scientologist. Nutter. Very true. It's very yeah. hard to look at him and not have yeah. all that creepiness within it. And the second mm-hmm. thing is that he bought the rights to the Jack Reacher novels and and cast himself as the as the main character in Jack Reacher movies. And the whole premise of Jack Reacher was he was a six-foot-six guy who was with shoulders as, you know, that were five feet broad. And the whole point of the of the Jack Reacher character was he was a big man. And, um, yeah, Tom Cruise has really ruined Jack Reacher's story for me, but that's just a little aside. So, anyway. Um, uh, you Tom know, Cruise is not a big man. It's, there's a bit of propaganda in these sorts of movies. Uh, from Crikey, it says, if you enjoyed Top Gun Maverick but were troubled by its imperialism, militarism, American exceptionalism, misogyny, rainbow washing, formulaic nature, reliance on stock characters, ludicrous plot, dearth of barely disguised homoeroticism that really made the first one, uh, then this podcast for you. It's called The Film Comment. Um, which has a take on Tom Cruise, nationalistic cinema, and the concept of guilty pleasure. So film comment if you're interested. I do not understand the uh, the joy of it. And Daniel says, watch Top Gun 2 last night. It was just a rerun of the first one. Flight sequences were outstanding. The story itself was pretty boring. Three out of five from our movie reviewer, Daniel Flanagan. <laughs> Daniel. Thanks very much, Daniel. <laughs> That's a yeah. quick review. Thank you. All right. Uh, Scott, Roe v. Wade in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are talking about it again earlier, just briefly, and people are shocked, but why are you shocked? This was on the cards. This was always going to happen. If you were shocked by this development, you just have not been paying attention. And this is just not only the culmination of, of Donald Trump's work, in getting these judges in, but also 50 years five, of dominionism. Five decades in the making. Mm. You know, they, they have been planning this 
ever since the first Roe v. Wade decision was handed down. Mm. They had been planning this for 50 years. Yep. And that's why they're all wetting themselves and that sort of stuff. They're doing cartwheels in the street and everything else. Mm. You know, because you've got two of them there, Amy Coney Barrett and that other bloke, what was his name? The guy that's Kavanagh? His... Brett Kavanagh? Or... Cav- Brett Kavanagh. Mm. They were the last two that were appointed by Donald Trump. Mm. Now, those two are probably the worst of the pair, worst of them, but Amy Coney Barrett is probably the dumbest of the lot. Mm. And, you know, but she lied in her confirmation hearing when she said that it is settled law and then she's just come on there and just overturned it. Mm. You know, which I think AOC was wanting them impeached for lying in their hearings, and that would be brilliant if they could mm. do that. Mm. You know, because that would be good if they could do that. Because you'd clear out two of them, and then after that, you'd have you'd have a a president who's got some brains and that sort of stuff who would appoint two more that they would then have to go through a Senate confirmation hearing, but. If you could get rid of if you could get rid of those two, then that would be a massive step forward. Mm. Anyway, seems highly unlikely. Oh, um, it's impossible. It's mm. not going to happen. There's a meme going around showing um, a picture of the Supreme Court and uh, which ones are Catholics. Um, according to the meme, um, at least five of them are Catholics. And um, you know, one of the things about the process is Scott that they go through is you certainly know what their religious affiliation is of these judges. So it becomes a matter of public record what their affiliation well, is. Well, Barrett was um, part of a religious sect that's tied up with the Catholic Church. Mm. But one of the things I found really disturbing about that was that her title in the public documents and that sort of stuff was Handmaiden. What? Handmaiden. A title? Yeah. Handmaiden in the Supreme what? No, is she was she gave herself she in in her religious oh, denomination as, as her position as in a yeah. pastor or a counselor yeah, or a she was a handmaid. Hand, oh for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> now that is ridiculous because mm. you know it's one of those things. The handmaid's tale has been around for a few years now, yeah. so Great series. If you haven't seen Dear Listener, go and watch The Handmaid's Tale. Yes, Brilliant. it's very good. And yeah. turning out to be quite prophetic and prescient. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's mm. one of those things like, you know, I just hope that this will actually spur enough Democrats to get out and vote this time, mm-hmm. you know, because now I know Hillary wasn't perfect, but Jesus Christ, she was a shitload better than the one we actually ended up with. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, anyway, just before I move on, just the fact that we know what their religious affiliation is, um, thinking back to my court case, Scott, um, Mm. uh, I am tempted to write to the Chief Justice when it's all done and dusted with the perjury charge and everything about we need some system where we need to know a judge's religious affiliation if it's a case involving religion. Like mm. if I was a plaintiff suing BHP over something and a judge had shares in BHP, that would be disclosed and we would know about it. And so 
you know, I think there needs to be a mechanism to make it easy for participants in the legal process to to know these things because it's a risky thing to um, to come out and demand that a judge tell you what his religious affiliation is when there's no actual proper process for this. So, um, so anyway, uh, uh, and of course, as has previously been mentioned, the uh, various state courts often have a, a start of a law year which begins with a a mass in a Christian church and I'll also be writing saying that's got to stop as a matter of mm. um, principle. So, yeah, so those two things. I think, um, I think because religion is a common, you know, judges have to basically disclose, you know, financial interests and uh, it should be disclosed the judiciary. Same with our politicians. Like... You know, I remember looking through the financial interests of Christian Porter and he had in there membership of some poultry judging association from some obscure rural community in Western Australia. <laughs> but he didn't have what religion he was while they were d- talking about a religious discrimination bill. So uh, this is the sort of stuff that we need so we can know what is motivating people potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least be aware of it. And, and it came up because uh, I did that interview with Kieran O'Reilly. Don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, Scott. But, um, yeah, I did listen to it, yeah. So if you recall, dear listener, um, his case in uh, Ireland was abandoned on one occasion because the judge um, was a friend of George Bush mm. and Kieran's case was about damaging military planes that – George Bush was ordering to be sent to the Middle East. Iraq, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, not the strongest of conflicts of interest, but enough that the judge uh, abandoned the trial because of it. Yeah, the judge actually the judge actually pulled the pin on the trial, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's why that's important. Incidentally, dear listener, um, I really enjoyed the Kieran O'Reilly interview. I mean, you don't have to agree with everything Kieran's doing, but I thought it was just a fascinating thing. So um, in terms of interviews, that's about as good as I can do, I think. If you didn't find that interesting or informative, then I'm sorry, I can't help you. That's I've, <laughs> I've maxed out on that one. It's all downhill from there. Uh, thank you again to Kieran for his time. Um What's happening in the chat room is uh, Sharon Cole. Good morning from Wales. Just joined. Good on you, Sharon. G'day, uh, Sharon. How um, are you? I'm looking forward to you coming over to see me. Oh, in okay. August. Oh, yeah, okay. good. Yeah, uh, she's Brian's mate and that sort of stuff. So she's inherited me with the uh, relationship. Oh, very good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, coming over in August, is she? Yes, she oh, is. Good on you, Sharon. Yeah. Uh, David Cox. What will I go after next? Contraception or same-sex marriage? Well, apparently, Clarence Thomas. Um, in his comments in the case, indicated that um, uh, other things that had been protected by the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court, uh, are now up for grabs. Things like um, uh, gay marriage and um, what was some of the other contraception. things? Yes, yeah, some yeah, contraception. contraception. Yes, and also gay marriage. That was the two that really stuck out in my mind. 
But I would have thought Clarence Thomas should be more concerned with the um, uh, the Supreme Court case that was back here with the loving, the couple, the loving couple. Interracial marriage. Exactly. Was sort of protected on the same reasons. Exactly. And he's in an interracial so, marriage. He is in an interracial marriage. He's mm. black. His wife is white. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's... Bloody yeah. hypocritical. Yeah, Daniel in chat room says it was uh, contraception, consensual gay sex and gay marriage. So, yeah, he didn't mention interracial marriage. Uh, he's African-American. His wife is white. Mm. Um, yeah, she was also the nutter that was um, encouraging the Donald Trump forces and all that sort of stuff at yes. the January 6th insurrection. Quite an active woman for a partner of a Supreme Court judge, very politically yeah. active, yeah. Tony in the chat room says, I hate to say it, but they didn't lie. They both left themselves the opportunity to claim they changed their mind since the hearing. Impeachment would not work because they could claim this. There we go. That's. I mean, you could say that. You could just always say, well, I've changed my mind. So good point, Tony. Um. Twitter has been going off. Lots of good comments in Twitter. Uh, this one from John Fretchley was my favourite. Um, you right there, Scott? Or is it mucking up? I think Scott, can you hear me, Scott? Looks like he's... Yeah, I just couldn't hear you before. Okay. I'm, I'll keep talking while you keep bashing away that yeah, microphone. Yeah, just keep talking. i just got to get this right. <laughs> okay. Uh, on Twitter, John Fritchley said, Canada must feel like they live in an apartment above a meth lab. I like that. <laughs> Uh, Ariana Huffington said, so to sum up the Supreme Court's week, life begins at conception and ends in a mass shooting. Yeah. Um, you know, that was that was the thing that I find incredibly stupid about this whole thing mm. is they honestly believe life begins at conception, but they didn't, you know, it was a 110-year-old law or something like that that they've now thrown out in, in New York. Um. Well, you know, arguably, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg did say that the the reasoning and the rationale behind Roe v. Wade wasn't particularly good. No, that's right. It, it wasn't great reasoning. She, no, she believed that you should have gone down the road of equality rather than um, privacy. Rather than privacy. Implied, yeah. You just, in, in either case, you're sort of looking for implied rights sort of coming out of the haze of of, a, of the spirit of a bunch of other sections. You're sort of reading various sections together and, and claiming an intent uh, to create a certain right. So there's, there's a, there is arguably a, a bit of reach in the way that Roe v. Wade was formulated. The thing to remember in all this is... What the Supreme Court's decision basically says is that the Constitution does not enshrine the right to terminate a pregnancy. If you want that, it's up to the states to legislate it. And in an ordinary world, <laughs> a sane <laughs> America, this wouldn't be an issue. You no. would simply have the states passing sensible laws like the rest of the world, allowing lawful termination of pregnancies at various points in time up until the fetus becomes viable to be, you know, on its own. 
without, you know, needing a mother to continue to gestate it. That's that's what would should happen in a normal world is this should not be a big deal. Okay, the Constitution doesn't have this right in there. The forefathers didn't think to put it in there, which is funny. They were such progressive men, must have been busy rooting their slaves at that time and not really mm. thinking about it. I mean, gosh, you know, a Bill of Rights created 100 years ago or longer just didn't happen to have the right wording in it. In an ordinary, normal world, the states would simply pass laws to make this lawful and appropriate and everyone move on, um, which is, you know, what happens in Australia. So we don't have a, a Bill of Rights. We don't have anything in the Constitution to protect the right to terminate a pregnancy. But guess what? The various states have come through and get get there in the end of the day. It just... That's how it should work. So um, got to sort of put that in its context. Um, um, let's see. Chris Turner says, I think it's more about bodily autonomy. I always think of um, the whole question of terminating pregnancies to be a fetus until it is viable on its own and doesn't need the mother is always reliant on the mother's consent. Um, and so um, I think Caitlin Johnston put it well. She sort of said something like, if your survival depends on being hooked up to my kidneys, then you're only going to survive as long as I consent to that. Um, so, yeah, once a, a, a fetus becomes viable on its own and doesn't need the mother, then, I, you know, at that point I think we should say, all right, well, don't have a, preg- a termination and and then we'll deliver this baby and the system will look after the baby. So I, I always view it in that sense. So um, other comments on Twitter? Um, yeah, Chris jo- Turner's just said, yeah. I don't have the right to demand access to your kidney, neither does a fetus to a womb. Correct. Yep. You're mm. all there on the goodwill of the host until you mm. are able to fend for yourself. And if they withdraw, exactly. too bad. Um Caitlin Johnson, feels like five minutes ago we were being told the US needs to continue its occupation of, of Afghanistan in order to protect women's rights. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, she also says, China is a strange backward nation ruled by tyrants. Said the nation founded by Puritans who used to execute women for witchcraft and just kill reproductive rights protections because they think Jesus told them to. Um Alan McLeod, if this were happening in an enemy country, the US would probably use it as a justification for a new war. Um, Let me see. Um, And, oh, this one, the best one came from uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You might remember she was one of the sort of spokespeople, early spokesperson for Donald Trump. And uh, uh, she said... We will make sure that when a kid is in the womb, they're as safe as they are in a classroom. <laughs> Didn't think that one through. She did not no. say that, ironically, Scott. <sighs> She's a bloody stupid one, that one. Mm. Yes. Um, Daniel Flanagan, mind you, Trevor, it has happened here but only recently. In WA, abortion is still on the criminal code. Um and there we go. They'll get there eventually. Um, 
But you can still grab a termination in, in WA, can't you? Don't know what the exact circumstances are. Mm. Mm. So, uh, yeah, in practice, ah, might at be least, different. At least it's not as backward as it is in the States because you do have some of those more right-wing states and that type of thing that are looking at criminalising travel mm. to more permissive states. Yes. You know, which is bloody ridiculous. So here we would say, oh, if it's illegal in Western Australia, you could always head to an eastern state and get it. You could always just go across the And and arguably that's the case in America. Something like half the states are going to make it illegal, like something like 50% of them are going to make it illegal. But some of them are talking about about tracking movements and, and prosecuting people who help women move across borders to get an abortion. So the smart thing now in America is if you're a woman is um, delete your um, – if you've got an app that tracks your cycle, uh, yeah. delete it. And certainly if you were contemplating terminating a pregnancy, you would not put it in emails or in writing or in any recorded format your, your uh, efforts to – transport yourself to another state and particularly if it involved the help of other people because they might well be prosecuted if you come back and then they um, – it's very Handmaid's Tale um, stuff, um, crazy. Oh, it is. It's uh, insane. Yeah. Uh, okay, Daniel. It's, it's one of those things that I can actually see the US falling apart. It's already falling apart, is, Scott. It's, yeah, I know, but this is this is going to make it formal. Yeah. Well, you could end up with the north of the country and that sort of stuff remaining the United States of America, the rest of the country becoming the Republic of Gilead. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Now, yep. that's a concern because they've got a smattering of nuclear weapons and that sort of stuff in the south and you want to disarm them before they actually become on their own. Mm. Mm. Problems for future generations there, you're right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There are massive problems that are going to have to be discussed and that type of thing. Daniel says it's still illegal in the books in WA. The Attorney General could decide to enforce it, um, I assume, without any legislative inputs. Probably one of those things where it's not enforced in practice by the sounds of it. What happens in the rest of the world? There was a good article... Um, which was in Crikey, but it was originally from a, a thing called Foreign Policy, which is a website. And uh, nearly 50 years ago, America led the world in liberalising abortion laws. Now it joins Iran, North Korea and Russia in shredding them. So um, let me see here. Abortion is still largely... Illegal in many countries, um, which we've actually put something up on the. Uh, let me just see if I can get this on the screen. A bit of luck. Um, yeah, so let's just show this one on the screen. So if you are watching uh, on the live stream or on YouTube later, you will see a map of the world, and the areas marked in green are areas where there's been improved ac- access to. Uh, abortion. It still might be illegal in some countries, but it's been improved at least. Um, uh, In the last three decades, at least 59 countries have expanded abortion access. 
And if you're wanting to see countries that have um, restricted it, then that's in red on the map on the screen. And that's 11 countries, um, including Russia, North Korea and Iran and the US. Um, and uh, also in Latin America. So in Latin America, it's seen some, they've seen some dramatic changes against a backdrop of previously highly conservative laws that often made no exception for abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. The law's persistence was largely thanks to the role of, guess who, Scott? The United States. The Catholic Church. Church. (laughs) Though anti-abortion politics have been taken up by US-backed evangelicals as well. There you go. So Catholic Church and US-backed evangelicals. Um, So the strictness of the laws left the continent as the only region where births by girls under the age 15 were rising and it uh, sparked a public backlash. And there's a wider feminist movement now in Latin America. Um, uh, Abortion was decriminalised in Mexico, not yet legal nationwide, blah, blah, blah. Um, So in Europe, let me just put that one up there. We, yeah, what were those two countries that were red? Yeah. Um, it's Poland. Okay. Yes, indeed. So um, in Europe, more than 80% of countries have legalised or decriminalised abortion and um, decriminalisation was common between the 60s and the 80s, uh, although there's still some time limits for medical gatekeeping. Um, you know, but, which I understand and that type of thing. Like, you know, the, the region, the reason why Roe chose six months was because that was when a fetus could live on its own mm. outside of the mother's womb. Now, yes, with a fair amount of help, but that was why they chose six months. Mm. In the chat room, Greg asked, what's the time scale? This is the last three decades. And the green means that they've improved. The red means they've gone backwards. Um, green still might be that it's illegal in certain circumstances, but it's been improved at least, whereas the red's going backwards. Um, so blue means no change, does I it? I think that would be the case. Um, and what else did they see here? Um, yeah, Poland, where the country's constitutional court blocked one of the last available avenues for legal abortion last year. I think I remember seeing those protests. Um, um and Africa's still looking pretty bad. Let's get forward for that one. Um, and um, and the other one would be Asia. Let's just quickly go forward to Asia. The majority of Asians have access to abortion, thanks mostly to legislation in India and China. In China, the battle for reproductive rights has taken off on a different form with campaigners and anti-abortion American activists fighting against the forced sterilisations and coerced abortions used by the Chinese government as part of its family planning program since the 1980s. Um, India has its own record of forced sterilisations, which continues to be imposed on poor and lower caste groups, Um, but it has provided broad abortion access since 1971 um, South Korea and Thailand were latecomers. 
decriminalizing abortion only in 2020 and 2021. North Korea is probably reversing that for demographic reasons. Um, Strong abortion bans in Asia are generally the result of religious conservatism. Almost no Middle Eastern country has legal abortion laws, save for medical emergencies, with the exception of Israel. The same goes for Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country, and Pakistan, which also has one of the world's highest illegal abortion rates. The Catholic Philippines, meanwhile, has one of the world's strictest anti-abortion laws. So, Scott, uh, religion and history playing its part Mm. around the world. It buggers everything up, doesn't it? Mm. Yep. Indeed it does. Ah. well, we joined the secular party all those years ago, ran for the Senate yeah. in the sec- as a secular candidate, Scott. Uh, right. Um, the thing about America is, as we mentioned before, this isn't just something that happened during Donald Trump's reign. This was a deal done um, back before Ronald Reagan so um, let me just find this article here. Um, how did we get here? It didn't happen overnight. And this is from uh, another article in Crikey. It began with Paul Weyrich, co-founder of the Heritage Foundation and the American Legislative Exchange Control in the late 1970s. I mean, dear listener, if you want to understand Roe v. Wade, you have to go back to the 70s. Weyrich and his backers didn't give two hoots about abortion. What they cared about was building a political coalition that could gain power and implement their real agenda, which was anti-tax, anti-regulation, anti-worker, economic revolution. Basically, neoliberalism which they wanted to implement. Abortion was just one of many culture war catalysts like guns, gays and race that could be weaponised to motivate supporters and win elections. So it was just used as a cultural wedge um, that people would get emotional about and would vote for and as a sort of a one-issue type of uh, emotional decision and um, so really powerful financial interests hitched their wagon to conservative religious interests and basically said to them, we'll let you have your crazy social Bronze Age morality um, provided we can run our our neoliberal economic policy and, oh, guess what? We've discovered this new thing called prosperity gospel, which will really, <laughs> which will really help you sell the idea to your flock. So that was the sort of the prosperity gospel was the bridge-making um, sort of um, glue that, that helped the conservative Christians convince their flock to get emotional about um, things like abortion and gay rights and vote for that and uh, and really justified these 
uh, neoliberal um, policies that they wanted to put through. And, of course, you know, the prosperity gospel, the other mean thing about that is if you are down, if you are not doing well, if you're poor, if you are disadvantaged. It's your fault. Yes, you deserve it and therefore no money needs to be spent on social programs to help you because you must be evil. You're out of God's favour for some reason. Mm. So that's it. That's You have to understand all of that as part of the Roe v. Wade background as to how we got here. So it's not easy to fix when this has been the crazy poisonous mixture that's been swilling around American society and contaminating it for the last 50 years. That's why half of these state legislatures will enact this anti-abortion law now they've got the green light from the Supreme Court decision. It's not an easy thing to turn around. There are no quick fixes for religious domination. Um, Sad to say. It's one of those things, like the United States is very, very slowly starting to turn the corner, like that Pew Research um, thing that was out a couple of weeks ago and that type of thing that they said that they were getting very excited because you've now got, I don't know, 15 or 20% of the population actually saying they're atheist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things. It's going to take a very long time, but it's one of the more surer things is that yeah, Billy Grahams and that type of thing are going to be laughed at in the future. I don't know if they will. Do you, would you say the same about um, really strong Muslim countries? Do you think, do you, you know, like you, no, you see them turning? Very, yeah, but that is very different though because that religion there actually, no, but that religion actually says you can kill apostates. Well. Whereas the Christians... They're not don't far from it. Far. Well, they don't go that far. They want to, you know, they want to cut you off from that type of thing. Like, you know, the, um, what do they call that? No, anyway, they don't show what, much mercy to. No, they don't. But they don't actually say, oh, you should die because you no longer believe in Jesus. Yeah. Well, not, you know, many Muslims don't say it as well, but, and they wouldn't want to kill, but they still have a very dim view of non Muslims. And a very yeah. strong belief, and you know, I, I look at those countries and think I can't see them turning away from Islam in the in the next decades. I just can't see these uh, deeply entrenched uh, Christian fascists being driven out of these American states either very easily. I don't, I don't see it turning around. No, it's going to take a long time, but it will turn eventually. Now, the problem that you've got in the South is that um, they are already deeply entrenched, so removing them is not going to be easy. But they were settled by these people. Like it was like the Puritans who who, who came yeah, over. Know, it's, that is something that Brian has told me too, is yeah. that where a country was settled by a group of people, that they often retain that sort of cultural belief and that sort of stuff yeah. from the original first settlers who moved there. Yes. So that is going to take them a very long time to actually get over. Mm. Yeah. You're probably right. It, is, it certainly does look impossible now. Mm. But, you know, we've had Roe v. Wade before. Roe v. Wade has currently been thrown out, but Roe v. Wade will be back again. 
Mm-hmm. Now, one would hope that the next time round that they don't just base it on the right to privacy or anything like that, that they actually go through and look at it differently. Yeah, you know, the current judges are, you know, oh, no, that's, gonna, that, nuts. that's going to stay they're conservative for another 20 oh, years. Yeah. And at the time when some more judges drop off, if the Republicans are in charge, they'll just then be more judges. Another, you just get another bunch of conservative judges. Yeah. That's why I think that the Democrats should actually take a long, hard look at the Supreme Court and say that, you know, you can only be here for 10 years and then after that you can you can go mm. back down to the appellate court and that type of thing. So they've just got this constant renewal. Well, you just have to retire at, a, at an age. I mean... I'm pretty sure our high court judges retire at a certain age. Pretty I sure. don't think they can be any age any older than seventy. Something like that. Yeah, a compulsory mm. retirement age would be the would be the way to go. Mm. Yeah. Now, RB, RGB would have been gone, but she arguably stayed far too long. Mm. Yeah, uh, mm. she did. That was a mistake. Um, yeah, absolutely. She mm. should have stepped down when Obama was still president so that he could have put in someone else to replace her. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, just reading further on from this article, Ronald Reagan delivered their revolution. The Republican establishment tolerated the zealots because they were a means to an end, except the zealots never gave up. They found their own champion in Leonard Leo, another faceless man who laboured relentlessly to usher Rose repeal. Leo networking via the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network, worked with Mitch McConnell and billionaire donors and he built the pipeline from classroom to courtroom to install reliable loyalists through the nation's courts. His name will not be found on this Dobbs v Jackson's Women's Health Organisation decision, but he is its silent author. So as we mentioned before, there were times when the uh, Conservatives thought they knew that a judge was conservative and when a president appointed that person as a judge, they thought, great, this person will be conservative. And then to their dismay, when these people got in, they weren't as conservative as they thought they were, made decisions (laughs) they didn't like. And they said, that's it. We're really going to vet these people now. We're going to watch these people almost from the cradle and make sure that they are hardline conservatives and we're going to watch everything they do so that if we do put them forward to be on the Supreme Court, we will know for certain that they're going to be conservative. That's what mm. the federal society does. Um, so and They're the ones that actually do get in front of Trump and that type of thing to say, oh, this is judges you can choose from. Yeah. Yep. And, um, mm. you know... Where does the money come from? You know, who can do this? Where's the money come from? Well, it's just it, it suits the vested interests to to do this. Um, so, when the article goes on, this leads to the larger reason behind Friday's travesty: privileged apathy. Millions of women and men who support abortion rights voted for politicians and judges who don't. They did so election after election. They did so because of political tribalism. They did so because they supported such candidates on other issues and fooled themselves that while the zealots might chip away here and there at abortion access, they would remain unaffected. They would always have access to safe legal abortion for their daughters and mistresses should the need arise. They were wrong. Their willful blindness has been exposed. 
in American women are collateral damage of their myopia. Um, he goes on, the zealots who spent decades building to this moment have seized their greatest victory. They won't stop now. Rights to contraception, IVF treatment, marriage equality and consensual sex between adults, um, each protected by the same constitutional principles that sustained Roe v. Wade are all in their sights and they aim to ban them all. And, um, and they'll drive a stake through the Establishment Clause that separates the state from religion. So in America, you shall not, uh, the state's not allowed to make laws for the establishment of a religion, and that's kept uh, the public purse away from religious schools and institutions, but that is being eroded. And the US is going to follow Australia in that regard. Now, we fund private religious schools. That has not been the case in America, but this Supreme Court is going to um, make sure that it does happen. Um, so they've already done that with Maine because mm-hmm. Maine they had a um, they had a had a case there where people wanted to, their kids to be educated in a private in a private Christian school, and Maine said that if there was no state school available, then they would pay for that kid to go to a private school. Mm. Now, this particular Christian school was absolute complete nutters. They taught in class that the Earth was created in seven days and all that type of thing. Mm. And so that's why the courts had consistently ruled against them, but the Supreme Court has just handed down the judgment saying that, no, well, you know, you've got to do that. All you need is one little crack, Mm -hmm. give an inch, they'll take a mile. It was one toilet block for Mother Celeste in Goulburn. Yeah, I know. And And look where we are now. money. Yeah. Now we've got private schools with multiple swimming pools, shooting ranges, polo fields and God knows what else. (laughs) This is very wrong. This article finishes off. Many people think politics is boring or doesn't affect them. Many are cynical and confuse this with being smart or superior. Many think they have more important things to worry about. Many have a pox on both their houses mentality. These attitudes are what the zealots count on. As Pericles warned 2,500 years ago, just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. Very true. Mm. Ah, what else have I got here? Um, I've got an article by Chris Hedges. That's going to be a long one and... He really goes to town on Christian fascist ideas. That'll be in the show notes. By the way, um, I've got uh, just a reminder on the website, ironfistvelvetglove.com.au, there is a link there to a news feed and the articles that I find during the week and I highlight for reading at some time, you will find them there. So if you can't be bothered getting an RSS feed reader and sorting through all of the articles in the world on your own, you can just go in there and look at them yourself and, and just sign up to one email from me, which will just give you three times a week a little list of um, things that I've found of interest. So there you go. Okay. Um, Scott? Yep. Unless, are you done with Roe v. Wade? Because we'll move on to some other topics in the last half hour. Um, yeah, I am. Uh, yep. It's just one of those things that's going to be rather depressing over the next... Yes. 
it is going to be depressing. 20 or 30 years while, mm. they, um, while they work their way out. Have you got any thoughts, Scott, about inflation and wages and the connection between the two and the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates and all the rest of it? Um, the Reserve Bank is just reacting in that type of thing. They are doing what they've always done. They are trying to put a dampener on demand and that type of thing because as far as they're concerned, the inflation is caused by what's called demand pull inflation. Yeah, demand pull inflation, which push, which pulls the price up because you've got more people spending. So what they're trying to do is keep the demand down. Now, that is ridiculous because at the same time as wages haven't gone up, profits have accelerated, mm-hmm. and that is probably one of the reasons why you've got inflationary pressures is because profits have gone up, but they haven't actually handed out any wages increases to anyone. Indeed. If you look at statistics, I mean, why do we keep all of these statistics about wages and profits and GDP, if not to look at them occasionally? Mm. And... Um, and there's a chart uh, on the screen, uh, no prizes for guessing, the yellow line is profits, which have been soaring in the last 20 years, and wages that have only increased at a tortoise-like rate in comparison to the profits. And um, so, uh, you know, yes, there's going to be inflation in Australia, like when the figures come out with the consumer price index and the cost of goods and services, but it's not because everybody's flush with money and they're just spending it and willing to pay more because they got so much. It's because the cost of things has gone up because of supply chain issues and the uh, cost of um, fuel and gas and electricity and, and, and just getting stuff into Australia is just more expensive. So the inflation is not driven by um, by higher wages. It's, it's driven by higher just cost of things that we're importing. And at the same time, profits, they're not going down. They're going up. So, mm. um, so let's see here. Um, so it's really – I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Scott – um, why have we got a reserve bank that is separate to government? And this is such a crucial role of determining monetary supply. Nobody voted these guys in. Why is this separate to government? I don't know that it should be. Like this is an important role for a government to to perform and they kind of washed their hands of, of an important role by giving it to a reserve bank who is found yeah. wanting lately. That was Keating's decision. Was it? He decided, yeah, it was Keating that that removed the role of setting interest rates and that sort of stuff. He put it in the hands of the Reserve Bank. Now, it's one of those things you can understand why he did it at the time, but, yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. Mm. But if you've got a political whore like Scott Morrison and that sort of stuff in charge, He's always going to be arguing for interest rates to be cut rather than getting them up to a normal level. Mm. And you could end up with a ridiculous situation that you have housing prices getting completely out of control because the Reserve Bank is, well, the interest rates are never going up. Mm. 
So, it's one of those things. It's a very difficult question to answer. I would have thought that you are probably better off having an independent reserve bank rather than being a reserve bank at the hands of the government. Well, this guy's making policy decisions and nobody voted him in. in. So uh, according to this article from Richard Dennis in uh, the Australian Institute, which is a left-wing think tank, he yeah, said, I have no doubt about that, but hmm. Richard Dennis is, does actually have a pretty good head on his shoulders. Yeah, and he does have a point, but uh, he yeah. says... Last year, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said he wouldn't increase interest rates until he saw signs of strong, real wages growth. Now he's telling workers that if they don't accept real wage cuts, then their greed will be responsible for inflation. So uh, apparently Jim Chalmers is going to hold a review of the RBA. Um, So even though inflation is running at 5.1% and is tipped to hit 7% by the end of the year, Dr. Lowe has said he wants to see wage increases that start with a three. And if wage increases become common in the four and five percent range, then it's going to be harder to return inflation to two and a half percent. So, to be clear, the RBA governor is saying that even though wages growth has been low for the past decade, and even though real wages fell by a record 2.7% over the past year, he still thinks that further reductions in real wages this year are not just inevitable but desirable. So he's saying, oh, inflation 7%, but I only want wages to go up uh, by 3 um, Yeah, no, so he no, wants all of us to take a 4% pay cut, doesn't No it? mention of profits. No, no mention of saying, oh, I only want profits to be starting with a 3 mm. This rhetoric of wage price spiral is hardwired into Australia's debates about inflation. But the reality is we are currently in a profit, a price profit spiral. As prices surge faster than they have in decades and wages fall, the share of gross domestic product going to profits is at record highs. It's never been a better time to be a capitalist in Australia, but it's workers who are being asked to tighten their belts. Uh, now, in the chat room, Chris says, I run a small homebrew shop. I think that graph would be more useful if it was broken down into sectors. Chris says we make no more money now than we did five years ago. We just have to pay suppliers more uh, now. I don't classify, Chris, small businesses as, as capitalists. A capitalist is somebody who rents and does no work, who can sit back and just hold on to stuff and acquire capital growth through just sitting on things. But small business owners in Australia are not capitalists. And so when these, you know, profit figures come out, it's it's big business profit that is driving a lot of these numbers, not your cafe and cafe owners and um and small brewery. Did you was it uh Small home brew shop. Really, we should talk to Chris more often. Home brewing. <laughs> Tell us about I this home brew stuff. Chris. Anyway, I gave up brewing some time ago. You, you yeah. did because you were drinking too much of it. Was that right? I was drinking way too much of it. Yeah, it's dangerous. You're in a dangerous activity there, Chris. <laughs> uh, well, the t- Chris says, sorry, I didn't realise it was a capitalist graph, smiley face. Um. Actually, I've been reading stuff, Scott, where uh, people have been saying 
why is it that that um, news, sort of a current affair and other other groups are always asking cafe owners about the state of the economy as if they're somehow experts on the economy, and they would say to them, "Oh, you know, well, you know, Labor wants to increase uh, the minimum wage by." Five percent. You know, what do you think of that sort of thing? As if cafe owners are the font of all knowledge when it comes to the economy, and a lot of them just wouldn't understand how it works. And you know, um, from a cafe owner's point of view, who are their customers? Are they other working class people, or are they just supplying the very? Are they a, are they a cafe for billionaires, or are they a cafe for the working class? Because if the working class has got a few more dollars in their pocket, guess what? They spend it and they'll buy a coffee at your coffee shop. So even though you might be paying more for your employee, um, you will find that, in fact, the working class who frequent will have more money to continue to buy coffees from you. So anyway, I digress. Um, it's one of those things, like we've had a few places up here that have put signs up on their doors and that sort of stuff saying, sorry, we can't get any staff, so we're not opening doors. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so, yeah, a lot of people on Twitter sort of making the point that why are cafe owners always consulted? Tradies, cafe owners and first home buyers, you know, there are other Australians outside of those three groups. So um, as, it makes, as he makes the point here, um, this is Richard Dennis, from the Australia Institute, um, imagine if instead of asking workers to tighten their belts, the RBA told Australian businesses to pull their heads in. Um, does anyone really think that if workers in the gas industry take a pay cut, Chevron and Santos will drop the price of gas? I mean, that's what it's coming down to, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Does anyone think that... Qantas's savage cost-cutting has led to cheaper airfares? In theory, competition between different companies is so fierce that if one company tried to gouge its customers, a rival firm would cut their lunch. And in theory, if one company kept increasing prices, even when their workers' wages were falling, rival firms would steal their market share. But in Australia, such theory is next to useless. Our energy, retail, transport, grocery, banking and retail businesses are among the most concentrated and most profitable in the world. That's why we talk to cafe owners so much. Um, yeah, because they own the bones of their ass. Yeah. So, um, so the feelings of cafe owners is no counter-argument to what the ABS data on profits is telling us. Um, Okay, there's enough of that, I think. Um, so, Scott, there's yeah. uh, a lot of industrial action happening in Australia at the moment. Which you can blame them. Yeah, and I think we're going to see a lot more industrial action over the next five to ten years. People are going to mm -hmm. start remembering they can go on strike. Um, and... Have you been keeping track of this guy, Mick Lynch, in uh, England with the railway workers? No. Right. I did know that they are, they, are, they are striking over there right now, but I couldn't tell you why. Yeah. So effectively they're demanding a pay increase 
to match inflation. That's been content, you know, that's been happening over the years, and they want uh, their pay to increase to match inflation, and so they're having some strikes. And so the interesting thing is that um, people haven't seen strikes for a while, and it inconveniences lots of people. And the railway is one of those industries where they've got power, where their strike action actually means something. And so there's this guy, Mick Lynch, who's head of the railway workers there, and he's such a straight shooter communicator. Um, I just love his communication style. So I've got a clip of, uh, of this Mick Lynch in action, and if Shay uh, gets back from her Canadian holiday and starts Googling Mick Lynch, and if she can emulate him in her role in the uh, trade union movement, she'll go a long way. So let's play a little bit of, um, this is going to go for a couple of minutes, Mick Lynch railway strikes in the UK and, um, and how he's handling himself. So here we go. But people who are doing full-time jobs, who are having to take state benefits and use food banks, that is a national disgrace. What will they do if agency workers try to cross those picket lines? Well, we will picket them. What do you think we'll do? We run a picket line and we'll ask them not to go to work. Direct the lie. The if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. So are you or aren't you? <laughs> Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes. The unions don't <laughs> tell me who I am and whether or not I'm working class or whatever, any of those sorts of things. I didn't tell you you weren't working class. I don't, I don't even know your name. That's Onto the street. You can see what picketing involves. I can't believe this line of questioning. Picketing is standing outside the workplace to try and encourage people who want to go to work not to go to work. What else do you think it involves? You've also lied that we left negotiations on Saturday and went to a rally. There were no negotiations scheduled for Saturday. You are a liar. The pensions of our members are going to be decimated. They're going to make us poorer, not only while we're at work, but poorer in retirement. And that's an agenda that the government has got because they want to subsidise the private sector in this country, as they are doing in the health service, which is being consumed by the private sector, as they've done in the education service, which is being consumed by the private sector. He should be apologising to the doctors and nurses who can't get to hospital, the patients who can't get their operation, the kids who miss out on their education today, but also those armed forces veterans who risk their lives for our freedoms who won't be able to celebrate Armed Forces Day on Saturday. Do you want to apologise for all that, Mick? Well, I think Jonathan should apologise for talking nonsense. None of that is true. And you're a liar. What the rest of the country suffers from is the lack of power. The lack of the ability to organise and the lack of the wherewithal to take on these employers that are continually driving down wages and making the working class in this country poorer year on year on year, while the rich get richer. Now, I welcome anyone that wants to join us on our picket lines and show us messages of support. All right, well, you're If more... Keir Starmer can't do that, that's a, a, th a problem for him, not for us. I don't want people to be Good to know uh, inconvenienced, be and I want a settlement to this dispute. I can't do that with a backbench MP who's just learned it off a script. And one of the reasons we're not affiliated is because Labour politicians since Blair have not identified with working-class people. And failing to do that is one of the problems they've got in working-class communities, and they've left the door open to populists and others to come into the situation. The Labour Party is about supporting working people, or it should be, not triangulating uh, from uh, opinion makers such as the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and the Times. 
So they've got to sort out their identity and they've got to come up with a set of policies. There are lower paid people and there are wealthy people in this society. And what's wrong in this society is that there is an imbalance between the people that do the work to keep this country going, who create the wealth of our civilization and don't get a fair share of that wealth because it's going to people who are vastly wealthy. But Labour should be comfortable with backing working class people who are struggling. And one of the ways that they can redress the imbalance is through industrial action where negotiations fail. What else are we to do? Are we to plead? Are we to beg? We want to bargain for our futures. We want to negotiate. And if we're not bargaining, you have to beg. And I don't want any working class people in this country to have to beg the employers for a decent living. And Keir Starmer shouldn't want that either. Oh, there we go. What a straight talker. Powerful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Very comfortable in front of the camera and just calls BS on people. Tells them when they're lying, when they are, and a straight shooter. Now... He was in favour of Brexit or some other thing, so he's not perfect. But, um, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be more strikes and union action over the next um, next little while. Um, there was actually – I don't know if it's on this thing. I'll just see if this meme is on here. I don't think it will be. Uh, just, oh, yeah, it is here. I'll put this up. <laughs> there was just a meme that, that was floating around about Mick Lynch um, – when he stares into the abyss, the abyss looks away and um, <laughs> COVID needs a vaccine for Mick Lynch. Um, but I like this one. Each of his balls is bigger than the other. No, <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, he's right. He, he's, he's, he's talking from a position of strength yeah. because the union that he represents is quite a strong union. Yep. So he's... Doing the only thing that a that a worker has got is the ability to withdraw his or her labour, mm. and that's what he's done. He's arguing that they should be withdrawing his or her labour to force a settlement with the employers. Mm. And this, now, it's one one of those things. I mean, I I don't really agree with him on Tony Blair because Blair, well, apart from the Iraq War and that sort of stuff, Blair was probably the pick of them, but. What Blair was he, a good Labor man for the working class. No, he wasn't a good Labor man for the working class. He was, he was probably the pick of them compared to John Major and that type of thing. Right, but Major was a conservative, wasn't he? Major was a Tory. That's yeah. right. This is what I'm saying. He was, he was the pick of them out of that pairing. But yeah, he was better than Major. I think I think but, the point of Mick Lynch was that he wasn't a proper working class supporter. Yeah, I know that. And, and none of them are. Things, no, none of them are mm. because they're not. Mm. You know, even the, the same thing can be said of our current crop over here because Albanese is university educated and that type of thing. And the, you tax, don't and the have, tax policies, he's not going to change any of them. He's going to no, continue with the top I end know, which tax is ridiculous. Cuts, small target. Which is policy. absolutely ridiculous, yep. yeah. Mm. It's one of those things that um, I find absolutely crazy is that, you know, if they were to uh, really tackle something, if they actually decided to tackle imputation credits, they've probably got opportunity to do that now and they mm. can still get back in in three years' time. Mm. But, you know, they've also just cut the... Um, 
And they've also just cut the staffing entitlements for the crossbench, which is ridiculous because that has now made the Teal independence the enemy of Labor, whereas the Teals, if they got together and they really honed in on some of the things the Labor Party actually stands for, then they're going to find a few of them are wanting. I was reading, though, that some of those staffing levels are actually arguably excessive. Oh, there's no doubt they were excessive. It was it was done to immediately. So then it was a good um, so it was a good idea not to not to, to trim the numbers then if they were excessive. Yeah, but going down from four to one. Okay. Yeah, that was a little bit ridiculous going that far. Right. But I do believe that they could have cut them back to two. Right. Yeah. Per member. Okay. Anyway, anyway um we're digressing slightly, but yeah, sorry, uh, the point I'm of all this is that New South Wales are bracing for a series of interruptions as unions plan to strike throughout the week as part of ongoing industrial disputes with the state government. So in New South Wales, they're looking at disputes this week from rail workers, teachers and healthcare workers. So um, so all three of them. And essentially, it's about wages not keeping pace with inflation. So the result is real wage cuts. And in the case of the nursing sector there, it was about changes to conditions where they're working harder than ever. So I think we're going to see a fair bit of that sort of stuff happening, um, particularly in sectors where strike action hurts and they can do something. So, you know, this is why Alan Joyce could get away with stuff in a pandemic. It's that shock doctrine. No. Yeah. If everybody went on strike during that, he would have said, I'll see you out. I'll, I'll sit back and I'll bide my time. So they, were, uh, they didn't have a chance. Um, yeah. So, so anyway. Now they, now they could actually do something because, you know, the, the travelling public is back and that type of thing. So it's probably a reasonable time for them to actually say to Alan, you're doing very well it's time for you to start sharing the love with your workers. Mm. Mm. Well, we'll see. Ex- expect mm. strike action over the next few years, dear listener. Um, finally, Scott, uh, maybe finally, how much time we got? Five minutes. Let's just resolve the whole trans athlete to issue in under five minutes, <laughs> shall we? So Fina, the swimming believe. group, the swimming group has come out Uh, with a ruling that states male to female transgender athletes are eligible to compete only if, quote, they can establish to Fina's comfortable satisfaction that they have not experienced any part of male puberty beyond Tanner Stage 2, which marks the start of physical development in puberty, or before the age of 12, whichever is the latter. So... Um, so that's FINA, professional swimming, um, transgender, male to female. What do you think, Scott? I can understand where FINA's coming from. Mm. You know, it's one of those things I, I agree that um, if, you've, if you've started your life as a male, you're going to have a higher rate of um, muscles and that sort of stuff than mm-hmm. if, you were, if you'd started life as a female. Mm-hmm. And that is... Well, at least if you've entered puberty, as exactly. described, yep. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's just, um, look, I, I feel very sorry for people that 
do have what is it called gender dysmorphia mm. where they honestly believe they were born male or born female but mm. they are stuck in the wrong body mm. i've got nothing but sympathy for them but it's just one of those things i don't think that my sympathy can possibly extend to allowing them to compete professionally in a sport for the gender that was different to what they were assigned at birth. Yes. I mean, we have to keep this in perspective that these people are being, by this ruling, told they can't compete professionally at, say, the Commonwealth or Olympic Games. But how many of us get to compete professionally as an athlete? Like when these people are saying, oh, it's the end of the world, I can't compete as a professional athlete. Well, guess what? Join a long, long, long queue of people who dreamed and worked hard of being a professional athlete, but for one reason or another, usually because they just weren't good enough, were not able to fulfil the dream of being a professional athlete. You can still swim. You can still do it socially in groups. You can uh, do all that, but it's just the case of when it comes to competing at an extreme elite level, guess what, you don't get to because of a pretty good reason. And mm. um, so there's been um, disputes about it. Now, certain- having said that, mm. so I can't imagine a guy offering it up to get cut off mm. to go and compete as a woman. I just can't see them doing that. Even if they did. Yeah. I, can, I accept it's- they can be completely genuine, but... Mm. Um, you know, like Scott, if I was, if I was transitioning from male to female, and I had prior to the transition been an elite athlete of whatever sort, mm. and then thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to keep in that same sport, and and look, I'm going to clean up, I'd be embarrassed by it. Mm. Like I, I would think to myself, that's not fair. Mm. I'm not going to do that because. That's not fair. That's one of the downsides and byproducts of this shitty transgender thing that I'm going to go through. Like, have some respect for your fellow competitors. Exactly. Um, So uh, certain people have criticised the FINA decision saying that it was based not on proper medical evidence um, and the science they were relying on was shoddy. But uh, James Pierce, spokesman for FINA, said the changes were based on science and ensuring fairness. FINA set up three expert committees, one scientific, one legal and a human rights group, and one of athletes to examine the issue. And the scientific community determined that men who transitioned to women retained physical advantages. FINA's policy stated that the science group, quote, reported that there are sex-linked biological differences in aquatics, especially among elite athletes, that are largely the result of substantially higher levels of testosterone to which males are exposed from puberty onwards. Um, And males acquire in puberty uh, these advantages which are structural and are not lost with hormone suppression. These include larger lungs and hearts, longer bones, bigger feet and hands, she said. So that all makes sense to me mm. as a lay person. This is a little bit like uh, 
the whole COVID thing. I mean, you read when we're arguing about lockdowns and all the rest of it, and you suddenly become an expert in in uh, in, in all these epidemiology, <laughs> and then then we became an expert in uh, in Ukraine, and now we're going to be an expert in, um, uh, in transgender sport. Exactly, but it it does make sense that um, these are structural changes to the body that they've spoken about that just don't reverse um, enough to bring it back to a level playing field. So I have got um, um, enormous sympathy for people who are transgender and it would be very difficult. And, but, gee, being cut out of elite sport is one of the – if that's the worst thing that happens to you, that's a pretty minor thing in the scheme of life. Um mm-hmm. Find another career, do something else because literally millions of other people are having to do the same decision for that and other reasons every day, Um, no matter how much they would want to be a professional athlete. It's not the end of the world. And um, and these people should be not coddled, sort of explained, like, really, your life is more than being a professional athlete. There's Mm -hmm. more to it. And uh, have a sense of fairness about it. So... Oh, next week or next time, not sure when it'll be, Scott, we're going to talk about Queensland coal tax and secular chaplains and a um, whole bunch of other things. So not sure what we're going to do next week, but you'll be around more often, Scott, now that Shay's left me and uh, <laughs> just feeling like an old man of podcasting as I as I run through yeah, co-hosts, I go through so many now that they just, you know, they just come back like you have. I'm just going to just recycle them now. No, no, no. Environmentally How friendly podcast. Have been at this for? Over six years, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it's been a long time. It has been, yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, um, just before we go, uh, Julia, um, Julia says, I really don't think a carte blanche approach will work with transgender athletes. There is so much individual variation among women and men, therefore trans women and trans men. Also, I don't think anyone gets to tell someone how important being a professional athlete is or isn't to them. Yeah, I can understand where she's coming from, but it's one of those things you've got to look at it that and you've got to say to themselves, okay, it's not the end of the earth if you don't make it. Mm. You know, you know, you everyone needs a plan. If, if if your if your primary aim is a professional athlete, a professional dancer, something like that, you need a plan B and a plan yeah. C at all times. Mm. Uh and if um yeah. So uh there we go. I agree to disagree with you on that one, Julia. On one of the few occasions. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm you can come on and argue with me if you want to at some point. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get going. Thanks for listening. Uh, talk to you another time. Bye for now. Yep. Thanks for tuning in. Bye now. What am I doing? Well, I'm going to listen to the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Yes, I don't know why I listen to sometimes, but I paid a dollar, so I'm going to get my dollar's worth. Tell you whatever it is. It's okay, I'll just keep the strike option up our sleeves. Strike? Bloody communist hippies. I'm going to get my dollar's worth no matter what.
Let's see what this strike episode is all about. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. You know, fist and glove, twelfth man. This is some of the most intelligent comments you have made all year. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.